You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. How are we doing this morning? Everybody good? Welcome again to 2014. We're here. And uh, with that, I want to uh, to start, uh, before we get to Psalms 90, which go ahead and turn there if you've got your Bible handy, go ahead and turn to Psalms 90. But before we get there, I want to uh, chat just for a few minutes about some family things I want to get you acclimated with in light of it being 2014 and some things that we want to make sure are in front of you as we start the year. Um, So first of all, let me uh, go back to last week just for a moment. If you were here last week, Dan Hutchins preached and did a wonderful job um, working through uh, Mark chapter 9, the story of the transfiguration of Jesus, that whole thing. And in light of that, I didn't get to say this last week, so I wanted to say it this week, uh, two things about that. One, it is a good thing when other people stand up and preach at Stonegate. That is a win for everyone involved around here. And then secondly, if you are a, a, a student, 6th through 12th grade, or if you have a student, 6th through 12th grade, uh, just to encourage you to make sure they get plugged into the student ministry. That's Dan's, one of Dan's primary jobs here at Stonegate is to do that, that role of helping minister to our students and helping um, equip parents to minister to students, that whole thing. And uh, if you were here last week, the content of that sermon was really rich and really good. And that's what they're getting week in, week out um, through our student ministry. And so just to encourage you, if you're a student or have a student, that you are, in, you know, moving in that direction of getting involved in the student ministry. I think it would be a great blessing for you team. And then secondly, I want to talk about two things. Um, Introduced one of them last week, a Bible reading plan. In 2014, we just want to encourage you to be a a person who is reading the Bible. We want to encourage our entire church family toward Bible reading. And uh, so we gave out a plan last week. We actually did some updates on it. So we've got a new one for you. It looks like this. You might have gotten it on the way in or you can get it on the way out today. But it's a Bible reading plan that takes you through about a quarter of the Bible um, this year. Uh, a friend of mine wrote it a couple of years ago. And if you think of the, the storyline of the Bible, it's kind of this redemptive arc that looks like this, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It looks at, at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And all the high points in that redemptive story, it tries to make sure it exposes you to that in the course of reading the Bible in a year. So it does a really good job of giving you the main point of the Bible um, over the course of this year, reading uh, a roughly a quarter of it. And uh, also into that Bible reading plan, it is infused with a lot of grace, which we all need in Bible reading, right? So uh, it normally has you reading about five chapters a week, one a, you know, one a day for those five days. And then it gives you a couple of days to either reread some that you missed or, uh, or to read some that you missed or reread some that really stuck out to you that week. And so it's a really doable plan in that sense. So we just want to take a second to say, make sure you get on that with us. Um, we're encouraging all of our home groups to get on that so that each meeting when you get together on a weekly basis, that you're talking about what God has been teaching you through reading the Bible over the past week. And so that would be a really good way for you to get involved in the life of our church and the life of your home group, that whole thing. So make sure you get on this. And again, we, we printed out new ones for this week. We made some changes and updates from last week. So if you got one last week, throw that one away, get this one this week, and you'll be good to go. So that's the Bible reading plan. And lastly, before we get started in Psalms 90, uh, I want to introduce to you one of the, the, the main initiatives we have in 2014, um, one of the three or four that we're really working on, is helping take next steps toward parents, specifically helping parents in the context of the home with discipleship and pastoring. And one of the ways that we want to help this year is by introducing to you the New City Catechism. Now, before you freak out with the word catechism, let me try to explain what that word means. So a catechism is a simple teaching tool. It's got a question and answer. 
that, that just helps pass along really rich theology. So as a for instance, the question, what is God? Now that, that question sounds like it would be easy to answer until you sit down with a pen and paper and try it, right? So it gives you a really well thought out, rich theology in simple questions and answers. So the New City Catechism is a 52, uh, basically 52 weeks. It's got 52 questions with it, kind of fits into the calendar year. It's written by some really trustworthy guys. And I think it would be great for you. Now, let me just one step back on this idea of catechisms. They are out of vogue in today's kind of 21st century culture, which is why for most of us in the room, we have probably never heard the word catechism ever. But throughout the 2,000-year history of the church, they have been used by both pastors and like parents in the context of the home to pass along rich theology. For most of the history of the church, these have been used. So, so to make sure theology stays tight, that people are being you know, equipped and trained. And so they are a really, really effective uh, tool to pass along that good, rich theology that centers on the good news of Jesus. So if you are a dad or a, a husband and you want to get discipleship happening in the t- context of your marriage, it would be a great tool for you in that. If you want to get discipleship working in the context of your home, like we have a, a you know, young kids, you know, all like five and below. And it's great for, for that. It's great for teenagers all the way through. So the New City Catechism has a iPad uh, app. You can go to the app store if you have an iPad and download it onto your iPad. It's got a web-based version. You can go to newcitycatechism.com and get it um, on the web, or you can just download the PDF where you have the questions, all that stuff in front of you. So any one of those options. It's got videos to go along with each question that explain the question and answer, commentary that goes with it, the passages that go along with it. It's got the whole thing kind of mixed in uh, to kind of make a whole system for you. So this year, it's going to be interwoven into a lot of our worship gatherings. We're going to be doing questions and answers together. It's going to be interwoven into each of our ministries, like our preschool, children, students. All of it's going to be interwoven into that. So if you've got a preschool or a school-age uh, kid this morning that's up in uh, one of our ministries, then this, this morning when you pick them up, you're going to get a little handout that has question number one on it for you to be reviewing this week with them. So I just want to take a moment to encourage you. That would be a wonderful tool to help you in the discipleship of your family. So in, in light of that, we printed out an, kind of an introductory sort of a, a paper on catechisms to kind of help you see the backstory of what they are, why we would use that, some tips on how to use that. So all of that is in this document. When you leave, it's going to be on one of those two little white podiums there for you to pick up. So I just want to encourage you to make sure you grab that today so you'll know kind of what this is, why it is that we would be doing it. Um, and you'll have a few tips on how to kind of start incorporating this into the rhythms of your family. So Bible reading plan, New City Catechism, all coming this year, 2014, and want to encourage you toward fitting those into the rhythms of your life. Okay, Psalms chapter 90 is where we are. So if you've got a Bible, make sure you're there. And let me introduce that by um, talking about it's 2014. And, you know, when you think of the end of a year, a year is kind of one of our measurements of time. It's one of the ways we keep track of how old things are, how how things have moved along. And when we get to the end of a year, it forms a natural break in all of our lives to look back over the year that was and to look forward to the year that will be. And if you're a type A person, you know, it's when you get your list of everything you're going to accomplish. You know, if you're type A, you're already on the diet already. If you're not type A, you've already been on the diet and you're back off the diet already, right? And so it just forms kind of that natural break in the year for us to look forward at the things that we want to see happen in life. Now, here is the burden of this morning. The burden of this morning is, as we look forward, for all of us in the room, 
It is so easy to look forward and to plan what is our life going to look like and what are we going to do and what are we going to accomplish this year. It's so easy to look forward in our life without any reference to God and grace and gospel. It is so easy to make all of these plans and all these things we want to do and see accomplished without any sort of reference point on how does this fit into the storyline of God and where life is going and where we're going and what God says about the world. It's so easy to make all of those decisions without any reference to that. In other words, it is so easy to spend the next year of your life accomplishing a whole lot of things only to wake up at the end of that year or at the end of your life to realize you have accomplished all of the wrong things. That is so easy for all of us to do that, to to, to live without any reference to God, grace, gospel, the big picture of life, to live without reference to all of that. And that is where Psalms 90, I hope, will really serve us this morning. Right in the middle of Psalms 90, in verse 12, Moses says, God, Teach us to number our days so that we'll gain or get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Psalms 90 is an invitation for you not to waste your life. To like use your your days, your short life wisely. It's an invitation to that. Psalms 90 has this, this ability to sober us. To kind of wipe the fog out. Like we all kind of get used to just doing life and the pressing needs of the day. And Psalms 90 has this way of clearing the fog of all the pressing needs that you feel right now that are so big in your life to help you take a step back and gaze at the great truths that should be shaping our life. So Psalms 90 has a way of anchoring us into those big, big realities that if we get those, we'll use our life wisely. And if we don't get those, we won't use our life wisely. We'll waste our life. And here's the good news for all of us. You know, I mean, the truth is for all of us in the room, we are not the sharpest knives in the box, right? I mean, that's all of us. That, that's not us. We are not, we are not that. And here's the great news about Psalms 90. You don't have to know a lot of things to keep from wasting your life. You don't have to know a lot. And that's good news for us. You don't have to know everything. To to keep from wasting your life, you just have to know a few of the really big things. Just a couple of the huge, gigantic things and then live your life in light of that. And Psalms 90 is an attempt by Moses and, and by God over Moses to help recalibrate us to what those big things are. So start in verse one, Psalms 90. Let's read through this together. And we kind of have an introduction to Psalms 90. It says this, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So that's going to be useful. That's going to inform the way we read Psalms 90 to know that this was written by Moses. And then you get to verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now contrast that picture of God there with verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it has passed, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, like they, are, now listen to this metaphor for our life. They are like a dream, talking about people. They are like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and it's renewed. And in the evening, it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. 
You have set our iniquities before, before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And here's kind of the hinge of the whole chapter. Verse 12. In light of 1 through 11, so teach us. In light of that, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And if you want to look at what wisdom looks like in our life, a person who is wise begins to pray like this, 13 through 17. They pray like this. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So verse 12, teach us to number our days. In other words, it's this invitation to use your, your life wisely, to, to not waste your life. And if we're, if we're going to get there, if we're going to number our days aright and live wisely, we have to see the big truths in 1 through 11. These big truths that Psalms 90 and Moses and therefore God is trying to recalibrate and reorient our heart to. So, so here are the big truths. If we want to, we want to live wisely, if we, if we want to not waste our life, here are the big things that we have to know. We don't have to know everything. We just have to know the big things. And here's big thing number one. It's in verse one and two. We have to see the nature of God. If we're going to live wisely and not waste our life, we've got to see who God is. So here's how Psalms 90 verse 1 starts. Lord, it's as if Moses is saying, listen, if you're going to number your days aright, the first thing you have to do is look up to God. You cannot just look horizontally out there. You have got to look up and see who God is. You've got to see the nature of God. And then he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our home in all generations. Now, again, knowing that Moses writes this, it informs how we read this. Let me just kind of do the backstory on Moses and where we are in the story of of Moses' life and in the Bible. So when Moses is writing this, uh, Moses has already, at this point, been used by God to free the people of Israel, to liberate the people of Israel out of Egypt. So if you remember all the way back into Exodus, the people of Israel are in bondage, and God flexes his muscle, right, rains down these plagues on the people of Israel, frees Israel, parts the Red Sea, walks them through it, and gets them all the way to the, to the edge of the promised land, this land that he has promised to them. And land in that day was your identity. Land was your security. This was land. So he gets them all the way to the edge of the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey is the imagery of the Bible. It's a great land. And do you remember what happens? In Numbers 13, they send in 12 spies. And the spies go in, they eye out the land, they come back and give their report. And the first part of their report is, yep, it's everything it's cracked up to be. It is all of that. Land flowing with milk and honey, it is that. It is incredible. But do you remember the report that 10 of the 12 spies gave? 
all but, but Caleb and Joshua. Everyone else looked at the people of Israel and said, if we go in there, we are going to die. Now listen, that was just like a short time after they'd just seen God deliver them out of Egypt. Plagues, parting of the Red Sea, food raining down from heaven. All of that stuff had just happened. They get to the edge of the promised land and they have all of this doubt. They're paralyzed in fear and they don't move. Now in that moment, God comes down and pronounces a judgment over the people of Israel. You remember what the judgment is? He looked at the entire people of Israel, millions of them. They're looking at the promised land. He turns them around and says, no promised land for you right now. You're going to wander in the desert, in the wilderness for the next 40 years. And every one of you adults, other than Caleb and Joshua, every one of you adults, you're going to die in the wilderness. Your funeral is going to happen right over here, not in the promised land. It's God's judgment over them for their sin and their disobedience and their fear. And so Moses is, is living in the desert. He's watching all of his friends, the people in his generation. He's watching all of them die outside of the promised land. They're, they're in this desert and wilderness that is a tangible reminder every day when they wake up of their sin and disobedience and God's judgment on it. Every day. And in the light of those sort of circumstances, those sort of dark moments in life, Moses looks up to God. No land, no home, no security. He looks up to God and says, but God, you're going to be our dwelling place. You're, you're going to be our home. We may not have security here, but we've got it in you. We may not have a refuge here, but we have it in you. We may not have hope here, but we have hope in you. I mean, one of the things I pray for us in 2014 is that God would enable that sort of faith from us. That when it feels like life is falling apart around us, that we would always be able to look up to God and know deep in our soul that God is our dwelling place. That he's our home. That when, when life has no security, God is our security. When life feels like it's got no hope, that God is our hope. That God would enable that sort of faith in 2014. And then Moses directs us in verse 2 to an attribute of God, to the nature of God. Who is God? He's going to give us one part of the description of God. So it's, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And then he says this in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's saying, man, this God that we have, he has always existed. He's always existed back there. He is now, and he will always exist into the future. God is eternal. He's always been. He's from everlasting to everlasting. This is how, this is how big and wide and deep God goes. He has always been. There's never been a moment where this God that we serve has failed to exist. This is what Moses is saying, that God is eternal. You know, if you've ever hung around old timers, you know that a lot of times they will give away their age by kind of referencing things that have happened. So if, if you talk to a person in Midlothian, they might say something like this. Well, I was here before there was a Walmart. Or they might say, oh, I was here before the bypass came in. They might say something like that, right? So it's one of the ways we use to kind of reference age and how long we've been at a place. And here's what Moses is doing. He's saying, okay, don't look at Walmart. Don't look at a bypass for how, how, how far back God goes. If you want to know how far God goes back, you see that mountain over there? You see that mountain? 
God existed before that did. See, this, this is the eternal nature of God. Moses is cluing us into the nature of God here, that he is eternal, that he has always existed, that he is now and he always will be. This is the God that we serve. Now, verse one and two set us up for the contrast of three through six. So one and two, we're seeing the eternal nature of God. Then you get to verse three through six and we see the temporal nature of man. The nature of man. Look at verse three. So God, mountains, before that, and, and here's man. Talking about God, he says, you return man to dust. There's your description of man, dust. And say, return, O children of man. So on this side, God is eternal. There's the mountains. Existed before that. After that, God's eternal. Over here, here's man. You're dust. You're going to return to dust. You were made from dust and you're going back to dust. It's just cluing us into the temporal nature that we all have. Just trying to reacclimate us to how fleeting life really is. And then he goes on in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. This is God. This is the eternal nature of God. I mean, think about America. We've got a couple of hundred year old history. A couple of hundred years old. And that seems like a long time, doesn't it? And God is saying, you know what a thousand years looks like to me? Yesterday. It looks like the last hour. That's what a thousand years feels like. This is the eternal nature of God. Then you get to verse 5. And Moses uses two metaphors that help us see what our life is like. So verse 5, talking about God, you sweep them away as with a flood. And then here's the metaphor. They, talking about human beings, you and I, they are like a dream. They are like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. Now these, these, these metaphors, grass, a dream, I think they're trying to show us two things about life. Here's one thing. It's trying to show us that life is short. Have you ever had that moment where you wake up after a night's sleep and you know you dreamed something? I mean, you, you know something happened while you were asleep, but you try to remember it and you just can't remember it. I mean, just like, you know you dream, but you just can't gra- grab it. Saying that is what your life is like. It is like this fleeting dream that you, you picture it and you remember it for a second and it's gone. He says, your, your life is like grass. If your grass is anything like my grass, it does not live very long, right? So he says, your life is like grass. It, it, it grows, it sprouts in the morning. It, it's so full of life and vitality. And then you give it the end of the day and it's dead. He's, he's reorienting us to the fleeting nature of our life. That we are not going to live forever. That your life is short and right now it is passing by you so fast that you can barely see it. See, this, this is your life. James, at the end of the Bible, in James chapter 4, our life is described as a vapor. You know one of those cold mornings where you walk outside and you breathe and you can see your breath for like a second and it disappears? James says, that is what your life is like. You're going to have this one breath and it's going to be here for a second and then you are gone. This is how fleeting your life is. This is how short life is. It's a second. It's a splash in the pan and then it disappears. This is the fleeting nature of all of our lives in here. But these pictures aren't just saying that life is short. They're also cluing us into the fact that life is really unpredictable. 
See, the problem is not just that, that we live short lives. It's that we really don't know when that short life is going to end. You don't know it. I don't know it. None of us know when our short little lives are going to end. It's unpredictable in this way. For, for you, for me, for all of us, it's unpredictable. And in light of that, see, we all intellectually know that, right? I mean, I, I think we would all agree that, yeah, life is short. Yes, life is, is unpredictable. Yes to all of that. But what's so ironic is, is if you just really boil it down, when we walk in the room this morning, every one of us are assuming and banking on this myth that we're going to be here for 2015. In a year from now, we'll be here. We all, virtually every one of us came in with that assumption, other than George. I don't know if y'all know George, Conference Center. George helps us around here. He, uh, <laughs> I was talking to him this morning, and he said, I'm so old, I don't even buy green bananas. That's how old I am. <laughs> so, so everybody but George is working under the assumption that we are not, right, that we're going to be here in 2015. But okay, look at me here. I want you to look at me right in the face. Some of us aren't going to be here in 2015. Some of us aren't. There's going to be people sitting right here, right now, that are absolutely convinced that they're invincible and that they're going to be here in a year. And listen, you won't be. And I don't know if that's you, and I don't know if it's me, but I know this, life is unpredictable, and it's going to sneak up. Death is going to sneak up on a lot of us. And for some, that's going to be this year. This is how unpredictable life is. It's short. It's unpredictable. And Moses is saying, you've got to wake up to that. I mean, you have got to see this. Your life is like grass. It is like a vapor. It is like a dream. It is here one day and gone the next. Okay, now, virtually everybody in the world would agree with what we've said thus far, especially in point two. Virtually everybody walking around right now, at least intellectually, would say, yes, life is short. We would all, virtually all of us intellectually say, yes, it's unpredictable. But apart from, so we all know that, but apart from God's revelation in his word from the Bible, apart from God's revelation, we do not know why life is like that. Apart from the Bible, we do not know why life is like grass, why life is like a dream, why it's like a vapor. And this is what verses 7 through 11 walk us into. Why is life like that? The problem is our sin. Why is life like that? Our sin is the reason that it's like that. See, there is a theological reason why it is that our life is like here one day and gone the next. There is a theological reason why our life is pictured as a vapor in the Bible. Why it's pictured as a dream in the Bible. There is a reason why we're here one day and gone the next. There's a theological reason. And that reason is sin. That's the reason for it. Sin is the cause of it. So if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, death was not in the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. But you get to Genesis 3 and, and, and God tells our first parents, Adam and Eve, if you eat that fruit, what's going to happen? You will surely die. And they eat the fruit, and from that point forward, sin or, or death was entered, you know, entered into the world. This is Romans 5, classic teaching in Romans 5, that's saying that our first parents sinned, Adam sinned, and through that one sin, death spread everywhere to you, to me, to all of us. This is the universal reality because of sin. And to maybe even be one step more specific than that, death or kind of this idea of life being like grass, short, unpredictable, that whole thing, it's not just because of sin. It's because of God's just and righteous response to our sin. 
So it's not just because we've sinned. It's because God is just and good and holy, and he has pronounced judgment on our sin. Namely, Romans 6. For the wages of your sin is death. So so now, because of sin, we've got a thing called death that is entered in. It's intruded into the universe. As a pronouncement of God's judgment over sin, we now die physically and temporally. We die. There's going to be a day where you die, and that's going to be because of sin and God's judgment on sin. But even bigger than that, there's a spiritual and eternal death. It's not just you die in the here and now. You can also now die for all eternity of separated from God. See, this is the stark reality of what the Bible kind of wraps our mind around when it comes to why it is that life is now so short. Why is it it's unpredictable? Why is that? It's because sin and God's judgment over sin. Now, this is what we're about to see starting in verse 7. Look at verse 7 here. Moses is trying to get our mind wrapped around this, that sin is a huge problem between us and God. It is the reason that we die. It's the reason that we can spiritually and eternally die forever. Verse 7 says this, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Now, I am fully aware that talking about the anger and the wrath of God in the 21st century is really unpopular. But can we all see from the Bible that it's there? I I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, the greatest myth of the 20th century is that there is no wrath in God. And that's a myth. That the Bible is really clear that we have a problem with God. Namely, God's judgment over sin. That God is actually angry about our sin. That God actually has been storing up wrath to punish sin. Like that's what the Bible teaches about God. That it's not, God is not just love. He is also fully righteous. He is also fully just. He is all of those things. And right, because God is also just and good, he has to have a righteous response to sin. And that righteous response is anger and wrath toward it. This is what Moses is cluing us into. And Moses is making us aware that when we try to stand under God's anger and under God's wrath, we are all brought to an end. We are all dismayed. And then he goes on, look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Now that's a sobering verse, isn't it? Our our secret sins? Even those? Yeah. Like even those make it to the presence of God. God knows all of that. You know, every year there is like a new celebrity scandal, isn't there? And there's going to be more in 2014 where there's going to be high-profile people that all of their dark and dirty secrets are going to be splashed across the news for the entire world to see. Now, the next time that happens, before you look down your nose and kind of a self-righteous judgment of them, just know this, that is a preview for what's going to happen for you one day. That there is going to be a day for every human being where we stand before God and all of our secret sins those things that we would have hoped nobody would have ever seen, those things that we have like sworn off into the shadows of the closet, right? Those things that we would have hoped that would never come to the light. There's going to be a day where every one of those things are drugged right into the light before God, where they are splashed on the news for the world to see. It's just a preview. 
for what's happening for all of us. God knows all of those things and will one day bring all of them into the light. Verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. They're fleeting, a dream, grass, and we fly away. Verse 11. And who considers the power of your anger? And who considers your wrath according to the fear of you? And that's a rhetorical question. Moses is saying, the problem is no one does. No one's thinking about that. No one's considering that. No one's living in light of this anger and wrath of God over their sin. No no one's doing that. So if I could maybe put this in a picture for you, and I've used this imagery before, but it's just the best I can do to to kind of picture this scene. The, 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 The human condition that's painted in the Bible goes like this that we are all born and we are born into the, we might call it the valley of sin. So, so we're all living in this valley of sin. Like the Bible is clear when you're born, you don't, you're not born with like a natural inclination to want God. You are born with a natural inclination to run from God, to stiff arm God. This is our human condition according to Romans 3. So we're born in the valley of sin. And we're living our life in the valley of sin. And we're doing all the things that make up life. We're getting married in the valley of sin. We're working in the valley of sin. We're having kids in the valley of sin. We're doing all of these things that make up life. And we're living in this valley called sin. Without ever looking up to to, to what stands over the valley. Without ever looking up and realizing, wow, there is a huge dam right there. It's like a thousand miles high and a thousand miles wide. And that dam right there in front of us is holding back the water of God's wrath for our sin. It's holding all of that back. So you've got a mountain of water behind that dam that is just waiting for the dam to break to absolutely sweep us away for all of eternity. And Moses is saying, here's the problem. We live our life totally unaware and without regard to the dam up there to the mountain of water, the the mountain of God's wrath that is being stored up for our sin. We are living unaware of that, as if that doesn't exist. So we're we're having babies, we're getting married, we're doing all of these things, we're totally disregarding that. And Moses says, it's foolish. Like, who's going to live like this knowing that that is waiting for them? That that is up there and one day that dam is going to break. Okay, so here's what we've got. That's 1 through 11. And then you get to verse 12, which is the hinge. Moses is saying, listen, here's the goal. I want you to number your days rightly. But I want you to live wisely. I don't want you to waste your life. And the only way we will keep from wasting our life, the only way we will get to verse 12, teach us to number our days. The only way we will get to that is by seeing the three pegs in 1 through 11. Who God is, who we are in light of that frail and the problem of our sin that stands in between us and God. It is not until we see these three pegs that we're going to live rightly, that we're going to live wisely. It's not until we see that there is a God and that we're going to meet that God much sooner than we think. And there is a problem between us and God and that problem is our sin and God's righteous response of anger and wrath over our sin. Since when we see these three things that we actually start to live wisely, that we don't waste our life. I like how one pastor defined wisdom. 
He said it's living in light of who God is and who we are. It's living in light of that. It's living in light of this is God eternal. This is us temporal. We've got a problem with God called our sin and his judgment over it. It's living in light of that we actually walk into wisdom. It's living in light of the fact that we are all going to stand before God much sooner than we think. And we need to be living in light of that. It's it's living under that awareness that walks us into wisdom, that walks us into numbering our days rightly. You know, if you were to think back over high school, there's probably a lot of things you think. But wisdom, that word is probably not one of them, right? So when I think about high school personally, there is so much that I just, when I think about it, I put my head down and just shake my head. I mean, it's just so ridiculous, some of the things that I did. And you know, one of the the major contributing factors to the foolishness of just life when we're 16, one of the major contributing factors, there's a lot of them, but one of the major ones is the fact that we have bought in hook, line, and sinker to the lie that we're going to live forever. We bought into it. Like when you're 16 and you're full of life and vitality and 25 sounds archaic, right? When, when you think that way and when you see the world through that lens, it's impossible to live wisely in light of that. And, and you know what's sad is it's really easy to carry the perspective of a, of a teenager, of, of being 16. It's really easy to carry that perspective all of your life. That I've got forever. I've got tomorrow to, to do that. I've got the next day, of the next week, the next year to get all of those things in order. That is foolishness. See, there is a difference in living and living like your grass. One is wise and one is foolish. And it's not until we see, I mean, much sooner than many of us think we are going to be standing right before God. I mean, are we seeing that? Before this year is out, some of us will be there right before God. And it's not until we start seeing life from that perspective that we can actually number days are right now. And then this is how it ends. Verses 13 through 17. It ends by the response. So you've got Moses' plea to number our days rightly. And him giving us in 1 through 11, the three things, the three big truths that if we're going to number our days rightly, that we've got to know. This idea of who God is, who we are, and a problem of our sin. And then he, then he implores us, don't waste your life. Get on the brink of eternity and look at life from there. Don't waste it. And, and then in the last five verses, he shows us what a life of wisdom looks like. He shows us the way we will start praying when we have numbered our days rightly and when wisdom is saturating our heart. Here are the sort of ways we begin to pray. This is his response. He responds with five prayers. 13 is prayer one, 14 prayer two, 15, 16, and 17. These five prayers are the fruit of him knowing these big truths. God, us, the problem of our sin, numbering his days rightly. And here's the fruit of the numbering of his days rightly. Prayer number one. Here's the response. Prayer one, verse 13. He says, return. This is his prayer. Return, O Lord. How long? And then he says this. Have pity on your servants. Have pity on us. I mean, if you could just look at the perspective, you know, from the perspective of Moses. He is dealing with the grumbling people of Israel. They can mess up anything, right? 
Just read your Old Testament. They can mess it all up, the people of Israel. I mean, they are one mess up after another. And, and Moses is looking at that. He's looking at them in the wilderness, all of, all of his generation dying because of their sin, the, the, knowing that they have a problem. This wrath of God is consuming them. And he looks up to God and he says, God, have mercy on us. Show us mercy and grace. The one thing we need, God, is mercy from you. Now, you know that grace has visited you. Wisdom is is coming out of your life when you're aware of the number one need in your life is grace. You know you have turned the corner on wisdom when you're absolutely aware of the biggest problem in your life is your sin and God's response to it. And the only answer to that is mercy and compassion and grace from God. And, And here's the ironic thing. Verse 13 is answered in what we celebrated 10 years ago in Christmas. It's answered in the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the answer to verse 13. So in light of that, I want you to read verse 11 with me one more time. In light of Jesus being the answer to verse 13, have mercy on me. And God looking back at Moses and saying with the storyline of the Bible, I will have mercy on you and my mercy is going to come in Jesus. Now in light of that, read verse 11 one more time with me. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who does that? You know the one answer to that question? Who considers your anger and your wrath over our sin? Who does that? The answer is Jesus has done that for us. He has fully considered the anger and wrath of God. See, here's the storyline of the gospel. Jesus comes and lives a perfect life on this planet. He perfectly fulfills the commands of God, making up for every one of your imperfect keeping of the commands of God. He dies on the cross for your sin. And see, on the cross, here's what happened. You remember that dam of God's wrath up there? Like, so all of this mountain of water behind that dam is just waiting to break over our sin. Here's what happened on the cross. Jesus stood between the valley, the people in the valley of sin down here. He stood between them and this mountain of water. And, and Jesus opened up his mouth and he drank all of that for you. This is the good news of the cross of Christ is that Jesus has fully tasted the wrath and anger of God for you so that you will never have to. That is the good news of the gospel. The the debt of your sin has been paid. Jesus has fully absorbed it. That all of God's anger over your sin, you never have to bear if you're in Jesus. All of God's wrath for your sin, you never have to deal with if you're in Jesus. He will gladly take it all for you, absorb it all for you. That is the good news of the gospel. Is that it's answered in Jesus, verse 13. Have mercy on us. God is saying, I have, and I have in Jesus, so that you will never have to to taste my anger or wrath. Prayer one, have grace upon us. Have mercy on us. Prayer number two, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Moses is saying, God, will you please satisfy my heart? The truth is, is that for everyone in here, we are all on the search for satisfaction. God has hardwired all of us with a deep thirst in our soul that drives all of us. We're all looking for what will quench that deep thirst in me. What is actually going to make me happy? What is actually going to satisfy the deepest aches of my heart? 
And you know what the story of the Bible tells us and what Moses is reminding us of? Only God can do that. Only God can satisfy you. See, we all have like a fill in the blank. I'm depending on this to satisfy me. Some of us came in the room um, this morning and we are depending on a marriage to do that. A marriage can't do it. We're depending on kids to do that. That will crush your kids. They cannot do that. Some of us are depending on work and accomplishment to do that. Some are depending on alcohol or a drug to do that. It's a million things. Some of us are depending on money and possessions. If we can just get that thing, if we can just get that new house, this new thing, then we'll be okay. And, And here's what Moses is telling us. None of those things will make you okay with you. None of those things have the capacity to satisfy that that itch in you for satisfaction. Only God can. And you know that wisdom has visited you, that you are numbering your days rightly when you begin to pray, God, help me turn to you for satisfaction, not anything that you've created. Help me turn, let me look to you for that. Prayer three, verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Now remember, Moses is walking around in the desert, tangible reminders on the effects of their sin. He is living in affliction, wandering in the desert because of the sin of the people of Israel and his own. That's where he is. And Moses is looking up to God, and here's the, the content of this prayer. He is saying, God, will you please bring back together what our sin has torn asunder? Will you please make whole what our sin has broken? And I hope that that brings encouragement to you as you think about 2014. The truth is that for a lot of us the last year, it has been marked by our sin and stupidity absolutely ripping our world to shreds. Marriages to shreds, finances to shreds, kids to shreds, work to shreds. Like our sin and stupidity has just wreaked havoc in our life. Just like the people of Israel, it has cost so much. 40 years of wandering in the desert. And God loves it when like Moses, his sons and daughters, confident of his grace toward them and mercy toward them, come to God and they say to God, God, will you please, God, will you please bring back together what my sin has destroyed? God, will you please mend what my sin has broken? Here's the good news of the gospel. God loves to do that for his sons and daughters. Man, if when you look back over the last year, you have all sorts of shame about your life, all sorts of regret, the great news of the gospel is you can bring all of that to Jesus this morning and you can say, God, will you please restore what I have broken? Will you please do that? And man, the good news is that God can like broken marriages, broken relationships, broken parenting, broken everything. God is saying right now, I can restore all of that to you. And aren't we thankful that we get to look at this in light of eternity with Jesus forever? In light of like Revelation 21, where we know that God is eventually going to make all things new. And regardless of how many days we have walked in affliction due to our sin, We have got countless thousands of days waiting for us when everything will be made right. And aren't we thankful for that? Prayer number four, verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. 
When I think about 2014, one of the things that I am praying is that God would absolutely shock us in the way that he works around us. I mean, that God would shock us. That God would shock you in the way that he works around your life, in your life. And I want you to notice what Moses does not pray. Moses does not pray, hey, this next year, God, let me make a name for myself. I want to kind of make my print on this planet. I want people to know who I am. That's not what Moses prays. Moses is looking up to God and saying, God, I want you to make your mark. I want you to make your name famous. I want you to look great. God, will you show off and let people see you? Man, may our 2014 be marked by some of that, huh? And I love that last phrase. You kind of get the multi-generational view of this. And your glorious power to their children. For all of our parents in the room, you know, I I don't know what it is that you pray for your kids, but I just want to encourage you on this. I want to encourage you to pray for more than good grades and a good batting average. That, That you would pray that your kids would have hearts captured by Jesus absolutely awed and overwhelmed by what God has done to meet them in their sin. Amazed by that. And that we, we pray those sort of things for our kids, that they would be shocked and they would get to see God do wonderful things around them. And lastly, prayer number five, verse six, or 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. There is much to be done in 2014, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot to do. And the truth is, is that for every one of us in here, we have absolutely no capacity to do anything of eternal significance apart from God. Apart from God's favor, apart from God like taking our meager work and establishing that. Think about parenting. You have no hope in parenting apart from God establishing your work. This is Psalms 127. You you can labor all day long on building the house, but you labor in uh, in vain unless what? The Lord builds it. Unless the Lord establishes it. Then what we need around Stonegate, what you need in your life, I need in my life, is the favor of God to rest upon us and for God to establish our work. Amen? I mean, I pray that it would be true for us in 2014. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And the, the truth is, is there are a lot of us in the room who we know that, that the problem between us and God still exists. That we are living in the valley of sin and that God's wrath is mounted up against us. And can I just warn you that you don't know when that dam is going to break. You don't know that. And the wisest thing you could do this morning, if you have never taken care of the anger and wrath of God that is stored up over your sin, this is when you know wisdom has come to you and visited you. The wisest thing you can do is to turn to Jesus and to trust that Jesus will be the payment for your sin. To, to, to hold your life up to God and say, God, my life is yours and I am trusting for the rest of my days and all eternity 
that the payment of my sin would be had on Jesus. He gets my sin, I get his perfect record of righteousness. That is the most important thing you can do to start 2014. And if that's never been done, man, I pray that this would be your morning. If there's never been a moment where you have turned to Jesus and given your life to him, that this would be it. I mean, I just had like this sneaky suspicion. There's just a lot of us in here who think that's happened. We've had some sort of a spiritual moment at some point in our past. Now, I don't, maybe this is just a moment to clarify. Has that actually been dealt with? The problem of our sin, the wrath and anger of God, has that been dealt with? And for the rest of us that, that you are a son or daughter of God, you're in Christ. And may God wake us up today to the fact that we may be before God tomorrow. That, that you just may find yourself standing right before God tomorrow. And may we live today in light of that reality. May we live today for those things that will mean most to us when we are standing right before God. So God, will you in your grace help us with this? God, will you help us see the big truth about life and about the universe that we need to see to number our days aright? That you are eternal, that we are temporal, that we're going to be before you much sooner than many of us think. And that apart from Jesus, we are going to be swept away by the flood of your wrath and anger over our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that we have Jesus who has fully absorbed it, who has taken all of that anger, all of that wrath. God, help us be amazed at that. Help us to be responsive to that. God, and help us to live this year in light of it. It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. When I was a child, I thought, talked, and reasoned like a child. Everything was simple. I never thought about deep things like the the meaning of life or the certainty of death. I thought about things like, what's for lunch? When does Darkwing Duck come on? And how long can I stay in the pool before my body becomes permanently pruned? When I played cops and robbers with my brothers, I never died. Sure, I got shot a lot, but like James Bond, I could get hit 50 times and still magically survive because I was invincible. It was all just a game, and the restart button was never far from reach, giving me a chance to start over, to try again, to live forever. When I was a teen, I thought, talked, and reasoned like a teen, which basically means I talked a lot without thought and with no reason to glean. The entire world revolved around me center of the universe, universally right, no matter the question, unquestionably amazing, amazingly arrogant. All that in a bag of chips. I completely bought into my own hype and expected everyone else to do the same. I couldn't see anything beyond myself, which was okay with me because I was all I wanted to see. Sure, I intellectually understood that I wouldn't live forever, but the grave prospect of death still seemed like a far-off dream, an idea better left to be thought of later, when the time was right, when I could really devote myself to deep thought. That time just never seemed to come. But now I'm an adult, and it's time for me to put away childish things. My life won't last forever. I'm not James Bond. I hate martinis, shaken or stirred. And if I get shot 50 times, I'm going to die. 
I'm not the center of the universe, which is good news for everyone. Because if the entire world revolved around me, it would quickly collapse on itself in a black hole of sin and depravity. The truth is, my days on this earth are numbered, as are yours. For none of us can escape the power of the grave. None of us. Our lives are no more than a breath, a mist, a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. Even those who seem secure are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. So let's stop pretending that we're invincible and realize that the only thing keeping us alive is God. And if we're still here, if we still have breath in our lungs, blood coursing through our veins, it means there is still work to be done. We are not accidentally alive. We are here for a reason. And that reason is to do more than accumulate stuff or power or comfort. We are not here to be served, but to serve. The needs of the abandoned, the neglected, the broken, our friends and our enemies, the strong and the weak, the socially acceptable and the least of these, we are a called people empowered by the Holy Spirit, sent by the great I Am to be His hands and feet to a broken world, and His mouthpiece for the gospel message that through Christ, our debt is paid, the power of sin is broken, and reconciliation with God is made complete. So in response to what Christ has done for us, let's wake up and see the needs all around us. Let's listen up as Holy Spirit tells us where to go. And let's stand up and get to work because there is much to be done and our time is short. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.